You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great, fantastic. We've been doing a series called The I Generation. We're just looking at the many different ways that we're impacted by society. And then how do we respond to that as Christians? Uh, I've lost count now. I think this might be week number nine. We've looked at issues such as singleness. We've looked at pornography. We've looked at social media. And this morning, I'm going to be looking at marriage. So it's the I generation on marriage. I got married on Saturday, the 25th of July, 1992 at Sig Cup Community Church. There you go. Um, I was 24. My wife was 22. And here I am on one knee outside with a rose in my mouth, trying to be a clown because, you know, you always get embarrassed on your wedding day, don't you? I've always been uh, one that wants to give myself to marriage as much as possible. I counted up this week because I was um, preaching on marriage. I've got 27 books on marriage at home. I've tried to read a book every single year that I've been married. I've only been married 22 years, so you, but I've probably got two to go, so I'm slightly ahead of myself at the moment. Because I think, how do I learn about this as a Christian? How do I change on this? How do I get impacted upon this? I'm unashamedly going to be quoting from this book the most. If you wanted to know which was my top book out of 27, I would say buy this one. It's called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. Uh, Next week I'll probably do some other books, but this is the one that I would unashamedly say is well worth reading. There'll be a picture of it come up at the end. Now having said that, and we're thinking about our generation, I realise that I'm slightly out of step. You know, I don't know, the more you've been doing this, I mean, I'm not a dancer and I could get myself into real trouble now, but I'd love to just get Shelley up and just have a little waltz at the, because what you suddenly realise is that I'd be all over her toes and, because I'm slightly, I'm not great like that. And sometimes I can feel like that with society being a Christian. So the reality is that here I am excited about marriage. You know, I think, oh, I've read books on it, I'm committed to it. But I recognise that I'm in a minority now within our society. In 2001, 50% of our adult population was married, but by 2011, it dropped to 45%. So therefore, if you're married, you're in the minority. I know that society is changing so that 50 years ago, roughly in 1960, one in 100 adults would cohabit. Whereas in in 2010, one in six adults would cohabit living together. Anatasia of the Civitas Think Tank says this, when interpreting these statistics, it's crucially important to factor in the gap between what couples want to do and what they're doing in practice. Attitude surveys repeatedly show us that the majority of young people today would like to get married, an aspiration which is noticeably highest amongst cohabitating couples. So she's saying, well, actually, I think people still want it. But actually, if we looked at the facts, we're not quite sure. Some would say that we put marriage off later and later. In 1981, I got married in 1992. I told you that I was 24, so I guess a little bit young, because the average age in 1981 for a guy to get married was 25.4, and the average age for a woman was 23. In 2009, the average age for a man to get married is now 32, and the average age for a woman to get married is now 30. Because many of us would say it's almost like we've put it off later and later. Some would say it's because marriage is not working. You've probably seen the statistics. Britain has the highest divorce rate in Europe. 
One in three marriages ends in divorce, and the average marriage will only last 11 years. Maybe you could relate to Abraham Lincoln. He said, marriage is neither heaven nor hell, it's simple purgatory. It's like this place where you just have to work out for your sins. And hopefully if you've worked out long enough, you'll you get to this place of heaven. Tim Keller says in his book, all of this shows an increasing wariness and pessimism about marriage in our culture. And this is especially true of younger adults. They believe their chances of having a good marriage are not great. And even if a marriage is stable, there is in their view the horrifying prospect that it will become sexually boring. Now, I wonder what your approach to marriage is. Some of you, uh, you think, oh, I've been married for years, Pete. 20 years, I've done 40 years. And so some of you might think, God, I'm not married. What is your approach? And let's have a look at it. I'm going to look at the Bible. The Bible has got loads to say about marriage. I, I, when I was preparing this, I think, golly, why did I just do one week on it? I believe that God is for marriage. I believe that it's his idea. I know that Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding. We read that in the book of John. I believe that marriage reflects the character of God because male and female are created in his image. And therefore, when children relate to male and female, they relate to something of the character of God. I believe marriage is a basic building block of society. I believe it's a disciple-making machine for us and for our children. I believe that it's a picture of heaven because when Jesus returns, it'll be a wedding banquet for all the society. That's the five sermons I couldn't get in this morning. But this is the one that I am going to do. I want to talk this morning about marriage and love. Because I think whether you're married or not, some of the principle that we will learn from this will actually apply to every single one of us. So if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians and chapter 5. Five. This is Paul writing to a church. And I, I know that you know, I, I've listened to three or four sermons on this this week as well as researching myself. Um, and I know several people that have thought, right, I'm going to preach from Ephesians 5, but they've skipped out the first couple of verses. I'm not going to do an exegesis of every verse. Please don't let this put you off. I know some people say, oh, Pete, read that verse. That's it. I'm gone for the morning. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Some of you guys, that's all you're going to hear this morning. (laughs) All you're going to quote to your wife is, did you not hear what the pastor said? I'm not speaking on that verse. Am I a chicken? Quite possibly. No, no. My wife is out on the kids. I can say what I like this morning. And she's given me permission to do that. (laughs) Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I'm going to go from verse 25, really. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a, a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Father, we do want to come and ask that you would speak to us this morning. We've loved coming and worshipping you. We find it amazing that you care about our keys that are dropped down a drain, as well as having the whole world in your hands. Lord, we, we recognize this whole series that we're living in a society that we think, God, how does this impact me? How do I build a marriage? What do I believe about marriage? Would you please speak to us, I pray. Amen. I've got a couple of words, really, that I'm going to sum this up. The first one is consumer. How do I take this out of here? I believe that this I generation that we live in is consumer focused. I'd be very careful now because I know there's some people probably even here this morning. uh, We love great coffee, but we're quite happy to have it in a throwaway cup. Because we're consumer. Give me the great coffee, I'm not worried about the cup. You know, we, we, we have that whole sort of throwaway mentality. It, it means, I believe, the I generation, that we've even confused what loyalty is. So if I pick on the coffee drinkers this morning, and I know I'm going to offend people here, you know, we think loyalty is that if I buy 15, you give me one for free. Suddenly, that's what loyalty is. That's not loyalty, that's reward. And our society, our relationship out there, impacts, I believe, how we do marriage. You see, our society is very consumer-driven. I don't know if it bugs you, it bugs me that, you know, I belong to Virgin Media. I belong, that's quite a powerful statement, isn't it? I sign up, I pay them every month. But if you sign up as a new deal, they give you a better deal than me. Why is that? Because business, they're not so worried about loyalty, they want new consumers. They want new consumers. You know, if, if I've got a mobile phone, I've got a contract, you know, but actually what they really want to do is offer the, the sweet ones to the new consumers. It's all about something new, something desirable. I believe that this whole thing of, of consumer is, is that we've lost the values of some of our relationships. On Facebook, we muddled the terms friend and acquaintance. Sociologists reckon you can probably only have 12 good friends. But I bet if I looked on your Facebook page, you might have 500. Or are they just acquaintances? I think that this slips into how do we look at marriage. Spectator magazine, and you might not have expected me to quote that in church, says this on marriage. We have allowed marriage to be so hollowed out that it is already little more than a few legal rights. Marriage has become a bit of paper. A legal right, so therefore it's an equality issue. How do we treat everyone the same? I would say, in society though, we we have this sort of moral stand, but if we really think about it, it's a relationship. It's about love. You see, I'm, I'm trying to throw something in for the ladies this morning. I know that if you've read Pride and Prejudice, and I've never read it, I have seen the film, but it starts with the one sentence... It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. That's how it kicks off the book. And yet, if we're really honest, what we love about the film is not that it's a duty, but there's romance. So Mr. Darcy and Miss Bennett, there you go, I know something about this. They get together not because they have to, not because of some duty, but because there's some romance. And it's almost like as a society, we move much more towards this feelings and romance and emotion. 
Therefore, the challenge could even be, and I'm not really talking about singleness, I've talked about it before, but you can feel like if I've never had romantic love, I've never known life. I don't believe that to be true, but I think it'd be easy if you watch a, a film like that to perceive that. So often, if we're really honest, romantic love doesn't last. And if a marriage is based upon romantic love, well, why would it last? It's unrealistic to expect people to commit for life. I don't know if you've heard of the comedian Chris Rock. He says this, Do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Now, some of think, golly, this is not a great way to go on marriage. But in some respect, this is consumer. How are you consuming? Many people have said marriage is a great institution, but who wants to live in an institution? And that can be the challenge for us. How do we feel about marriage? And I think in our I-generation stage, what's happened is we've got confused about marriage. And as a consumer, we think, I'm not quite sure I enjoy it. And, and actually, many people say, I just don't want to go down the road of just blatant sex with anybody that I meet on the first time. So I'll go down the middle road. I'll cohabit. And so you know that the statistics have picked up for those that cohabit. Obviously, if you cohabit, if you live with someone, you're not married, you can have a home, you can have a relationship, you can have sex, you can have all of that without the commitment. It's slide rather than decide, they say. And that's possibly our I generation. We've ignored the statistics that say, and I find this fascinating, that actually, if you cohabit, you're more likely to break up than if you marry. If you cohabit, there's more likely to be domestic violence than if you're married. If you cohabit, there's more likely to be violence towards the children than if you're married. If you cohabit, you're less likely to be as financially or as emotionally well as if you marry. If you cohabit, you are less likely to enjoy sex as if you marry. Man alive, I mean, come on, for half of us, that's the reason to marry. No, we're not going down that road this morning. But I think, come on, are we going to live? What is our consumer approach in the I generation. It's probably not a big thing here in the UK, but not everyone here is from the UK. We think about prenuptials. How do I back myself up in case this goes horribly wrong? Apparently it's not just for divorce. You can get a prenuptial now for bankruptcy. They've messed up financially. I need out. Tim Keller says again, marriage used to be a public institution for the common good. And now it is a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individuals. Marriage used to be about us, but now it is about me. And so therefore, there's been this sort of change in our generation all to do with marriage. I mean, I always feel a little bit nervous because I preached on social media, and I'm now aware that wherever, whatever site I visit, I'm leaving some sort of trail in the cyberspace. If you looked at my trail this week, I would be rather embarrassed because I went on some dating sites. I didn't actually sign up, but I thought, let's try and find out what it's like. How do people do? Yeah. What I found interesting is people like eHarmony, they want to find a partner that suits you so that you don't have to change. Tell us what you're like, and we'll find you the perfect partner for you because then as a consumer, you don't need to change. You could come into this relationship, you stay as you are. Let them adjust to you. How different to this society 50 years ago? 
Winston Churchill, who we've all heard about, surely, you know, this great politician and prime minister, said this, my greatest, my most brilliant achievement was my ability to persuade my wife to marry me. He was, wow, you know, I'm just so grateful, whereas actually, we can think, actually, I want somebody just to adjust to me. I think this is a huge challenge, the consumer approach to relationships, to the biblical one. Again, I quote Tim Keller. I think every slide is probably Tim Keller, apart from the Bible this morning. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it not primarily in how much you receive, but in how much you're willing to give yourself to someone else. How much you're willing to lose for the sake of the other person. How much of your freedom you're willing to forsake. How much of your precious time, emotion and resources are you willing to invest in the other person. You see, the danger with the consumer mentality is, I love if I feel it, but if I don't, it's a duty, and I don't want to do a duty. I don't want to be hollow. I don't want to be unreal. And so therefore, if we're faced with the choice between feelings and duty and passion and promise, we tend to choose passion over faithfulness. It's funny, there's, a, there's a probably only one relationship which I know, again, I'm slightly off where I'm meant to be speaking, that we would, I would say, talk about something permanent in the I generation. And that's the parent. I thought it's funny, isn't it, because people walk away from a marriage or from living with somebody, but it's still considered terrible if you were to walk away from your kids. If you were to hand them into social services and say, I'm just not sure I like them anymore. I mean, to be honest, they were nice. And when I covered them in talcum powder, they even smelt nice. You know what I'm saying? But after, after about two, they talk back. And you suddenly think, just, I'm not sure I quite like this. We, we still think that's a bit shocking. That's probably the only relationship that I would say expresses something of the other side of consumerism. So I think you can either consume or you can covenant. And I think there's these two ends of a bookend that I'm trying to look at from the biblical thing. One is that you're consumers, one is that you're covenant. Agatha Christie said this, an archaeologist is the best husband any woman can have. The older you get, the more interested he is in you. I mean, that's the whole thing, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? There's meant to be this, how do we have this commitment for the long term? Marry an archaeologist. It's funny because it is a challenge. Marriage is a challenge. Albert Einstein, I know you always think of him to do with physics, he commented on marriage as well. He said, men marry with the hope that the woman will never change. Women marry with the hope they will change the guy and invariably both of them are disappointed. You know, so this guy marries this, you know, 24-year-old woman and thinks, man alive, if I've got that for the rest of my life, I'm really happy. She marries and thinks, I think there's a, a, a block of marble that I could make something beautiful out of here. Bill Hybels, he leads a church in Chicago of about 20,000. He says this, living intimately with another human being is the greatest challenge in the world. That's why I keep going back to this word, covenant. Living with another human being is the greatest challenge in the world. Mark Driscoll, who's another pastor from the States, who's uh, widely read and listened to, says this, marriage is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. Marriage is an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. I would like to put this out, really good news to you if you are married, challenge if you're not, marriage is really hard work. Marriage is really hard work. It doesn't make you weak, 
it shows up the weaknesses that are there. The harsh reality is that when I was a single guy, I could be out and you could be the life and the soul of the party and you can laugh away because you've only got to keep that persona going so long. You know what I'm saying? When, when, I, when I feel like the jokes are running out, I just go home. When I feel tired, you just don't go out. Suddenly I'm married, they see me all the time. I feel for my wife, I really do. You know, pray for her regularly. I felt I met her at college and I just tried to be the Mr. Charming, smooth, funny guy, you know what I'm saying? And she fell for it and she married me. We got married and I cried every day on my honeymoon. I'd done my first year of teaching. she just finished her degree. I was just spent. And she'd probably think, oh no, you know, is there a 30-day return on this commitment? But it's not because we say it's covenant. You see, it's not a contract. A contract is a legal agreement saying what I expect of you. A covenant, I believe, is more than that. It's an unconditional promise of what I would give to you. I believe that's the biblical understanding of marriage. In Malachi 2 verse 14, it says this, You ask why? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she's your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. I believe that this is how the Bible would see marriage. It's love that lasts, love that stays. Mark 10. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Sometimes we even hear that, don't we? Said at a marriage. You see, if you approach marriage as a consumer, we're always hiding behind the mask, selling ourselves, trying to impress. But actually, if we enter into a covenant, I believe it's the total other end. Again, Tim Keller says this, the rush of head over heels in love is nothing like the profound satisfaction of being known and being loved. When over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows all your strengths and flaws, yet continues to wholly commit themselves to you, is a consummate experience. To be loved but not known is comforting, even exciting and superficial. To be known and not loved is about greatest fear. But to be known fully and truly loved is, well, a lot like to be loved by God. It's what we need more than anything else. I don't know about you, I, I sometimes thought, and I tried to look for some pictures. Yeah, there's another trail that you won't want to look at on my computer. Loving couples, you know what I'm saying? And it's funny because so many of them, you know, they're sort of young, 24, 26, they're running along the beach. I mean, I felt quite insecure. Most of the guys didn't even have anything on their tops, you know what I'm saying? They're sort of, it's, it's, and then suddenly you get a couple of old people that are like 80, and some of them had even dressed up in their wedding gear. I mean, I tell you, it's quite a giggle if you want to look it up on Google. You know, and they're sort of like this. And you thought, oh, I wonder if that's real love. Real love, they still hold hands when they're, they're being... My parents, it's their 50th wedding anniversary this year. And sometimes I think, God, is that real love? Because you know in pain, and you've really understood the person. You've seen them at their best, and you've seen them at their worst. And I would say that that, therefore, is a picture of the gospel. You see, I think this is my concern. When you start messing with marriage, you start messing with the gospel. 
and you start messing with your picture of God. You see, Jesus did die on the cross to purchase our freedom. The danger then is that we approach Jesus like a consumer. Well, actually, you've done this for me, so therefore, I sat and listened to one of Pete's sermons. You know what I'm saying? I went along Sunday by Sunday. I had better things to do. But Jesus, you died on the cross, and therefore, I'm buying something from you. I put something in the pot because I need to, because I'm a consumer. I serve on the kids. I brush up on my self-righteousness so that it might seem a little bit more worthwhile. The danger is that if we approach Jesus as a consumer... Christianity becomes a commodity. We market it to other people. Hey, if you go to church, you can get this. If you give to God, he'll bless you here. And suddenly we try and sell Christianity. The challenge with that is that often with a consumer, if you don't like the product, your relationship's not important. You break off and you buy elsewhere. Our society is like that, isn't it? That's why we even try and get loyalty cards, try and get them to keep coming back. The challenge is we can then bring that into our relationship with Jesus. So ultimately we think, I'll bail out because the cost is too high. I believe that if I had to describe love in marriage, I don't want it to be love as consumer, I want it to be love in terms of covenant. You see, marriage is very similar to the gospel. I didn't realize how bad I was until I understood Jesus. I didn't realize a lot of my weaknesses until I got married. You see, getting married, you suddenly hold a mirror up to yourself, if you're really honest. And you think, golly, am I really that selfish, lazy, ignorant, thoughtless? Golly, I got married and I suddenly discovered a lot about myself. And you think, oh, I think actually that's the gospel. I never realized how bad I was until God said, well, look, this is the standard. Actually, I'm not asking you to compare yourself with other people in the room, Pete. I'm asking you to compare yourself with perfection. And so suddenly, it's a bit like marriage. You come and you think, oh, golly, have I done anything good? If I just did three wrong things a day, that's what, 70,000, is it, in my life? Imagine going to court, you know, and the judge says, let's just listen to his previous convictions. <laughs> yawn, yawn. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 14 days later, yeah, we've got two, he's about five. <laughs> you think, golly, that's the standard I'm living under. And yet also the picture of marriage is this, that actually there's a commitment to love no matter what. And that's how God feels about us. Jesus loves and gives. Again, I, I quote Tim Keller, I've got him here. When Jesus looked down from the cross, he didn't think, I'm giving myself to you because you're so attractive to me. No, he was in agony and he looked down on us, denying him, abandoning him, betraying him. And in the greatest act of love in history, he stayed. And I think that's how I want to understand something of, of marriage because I, I want to look at a relationship and I think, how does God relate to me? Does he approach me as a consumer? No, he, he wants to commit in a covenant of love. It says in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He reached out. Surely the greatest verse, the verse that you could all quote to me, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish. That's the covenant that God establishes with us. 
If I thought about love, if I thought about that Ephesians 5 passage, which takes me back to Jesus and the church and the husband and the wife, when I look at Jesus and the way he loves, he stayed because covenant love gives. He stayed because true love sacrifices. He stays because actually pure love keeps its promises. And so then I think, actually, how do I build a marriage in this day and age? I think, well, do I say I'm going to become an I-generation consumer? Or could I become biblical and covenant in my love? Jesus is our model. He's the one who empowers us to be great husbands and wives. Helps us to commit, helps us to sacrifice, helps us to give, helps us to love, helps us to stay. This is my final quote from the guy. You probably think, I don't need to buy the book now. You've got most of it. The reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever did hoped. I read this one twice. I mean, it's good stuff, isn't it? The reason that marriage is so painful and yet wonderful is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever did believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. See, I think this is the the beauty to me of being a Christian in an I generation. We believe this, don't we? I don't know where you will stand. And, And it seems heavy, but the gospel would say this. You're more sinful than you'd like to admit. But actually, God loves you more than you could ever understand. If you've never made a decision for him, that is getting to the point of saying, look, actually, I need help in this. That's getting to the point of saying, golly, I I just don't want to do my own thing, my own way anymore. I want to accept his love for me. Because I think if we understand that, that would change everything. I feel a little bit, um, and, and before I rush on, I would say, if that's you, I'd love to chat to you this morning. If you're thinking, actually, Pete, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian, this whole gospel thing, then I'd love to chat to you today. If you're here and you think, golly, I realize I've probably approached any relationship a bit more like a consumer than a covenanter, then I think, actually, God will want to come and speak to us. You see, what I thought when I was going to preach upon marriage, and, you know, and uh, I thought, oh, I'd just love to tell some stories. I love to encourage people to have date times. You know, I, I've got all these good ideas of love languages and how that we could relate to them. I think, oh, there's some great tips. But I felt God say, it's no point painting the foreground until you've painted the background. Surely, how could we try and make marriages better or any relationship better unless we've got this background of understanding what love is really about? And so, in, in many respects, I would say this is part one of a two-parter. I've caught you now. You see, you've turned up for week one. You've got to come back for week two. 
Because reality is, you think, oh, you've, you've heard the background. And then you say, but Pete, how does that help? What about sex? We all think about sex, don't we? When we think about marriage, half of us do. I'm aware. I've read the surveys. Well, if you want to find out the answer to that, you've got to come along next week. But actually, this week, it's do you know God's covenant love for you? And are you expressing that to others? If you're married here, I'd like you to stand. I'd just like to pray a blessing over you. Father, I thank you that we can gather before you. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you are our model. Your, your covenant love for the church. You lay down your life. It just provokes us again. What will we be like? Lord, I want to pray over every marriage. I know that God is for them. I know the devil is against them. God, I want to pray your richest blessing over marriages. I pray that for for guys and girls, they'll understand something of the love of God for them, and that would then be expressed in their marriage. I ask for that, oh God. Lord, I, I want to pray for those that, that you know, it, there's difficult days. There's young children. There's no children. There's pressures at work. There's financial burdens. Father, I pray for people to express covenant love in their marriage. In Jesus' name. Amen. I, please grab a seat. I'd love to pray as well. It's funny, I just kept thinking, oh, golly, how do we minister out of the back of this? I know for some you think, golly, Pete, I've got divorced. And I feel bad having heard a sermon like that. And to be honest, I'm not here trying to water stuff down, but I do want to express grace to you. I'm not here to judge anybody. I know that Jesus welcomed many people, apart from the religious stiff upper lip. And I don't want to be like that, and I don't want us to be a church that's like that. And so if you think, oh, golly, I wish things had been different, I believe there's grace for you. I'd like to pray for those. I'm not going to ask you to stand. Father, I want to pray for those. If they're really honest, some are still in marriages, but they're acting like consumers rather than covenanters. And some have got out, and they maybe wish they hadn't. Or maybe they just carry the pain from it. Father, we want to ask for your grace for them for today. Jesus, we thank you so much that you welcomed all. The only ones you ever had harsh word for were religious leaders that were judgmental and critical. Keep us from that, I pray. As a church, I pray you keep us from that. We want to hold this high value of marriage and we want to welcome and support all. So I pray for those, particularly those that have been through painful divorces. We ask your hand, your blessing upon them this morning in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And finally, and it's nothing to do with marriage at all, but as I said, some of us, if we're really honest, in our relationships, and I can, you know, I think, have I just become a consumer? While the relationship's going well, while the product's flowing, I'll keep good. And when it's bad, I just break off. 
I'd just like us to have a moment to pause and reflect upon that. Let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Jesus, I do pray that we'd love like you do. Oh, help us not just to be those that consume and move on all the time. I pray that, Lord, we want a church here that are committed, genuinely love one another, for one another. I pray even, Lord, you break cliques in the church, make us friendly and welcoming, committed, genuine, I pray that we love like you love. Lord, help us to ask for forgiveness from people that maybe we've just broken off too quickly. We've moved on. We felt like we've abandoned or left. Lord, sometimes I think of those that are ill, those that are old, those that maybe just slowed down in life for whatever reason. And we could just sort of so quickly move on. God, we do want to be those that are faithful, keep promises, that are diligent, that love the way you love. Amen. Right, we're going to finish there. It was meant to be a high note this morning. I was meant to be finishing on the gospel, and now we've ended up praying for everyone, and, you know, it can be challenging. We are going to come and uh, give our offerings. Uh, if you're visiting, look, there's no pressure on this whatsoever. We believe in the gospel that says, golly, I was bad, worse than I could imagine, but I'm loved. And that's why we're giving of this. Just to say a quick story for those that are visiting, we as a church, it's our first month where we're financially on our own. We've been supported and helped through another church, which is in Catford, and that took us right up to the end of March. And now from the beginning of April, we're trusting God. And I love this church because people are generous here. And so, please, this is not a, a begging bowl at all. This is us coming and saying, Father, we trust you, we love you. In fact, we've, we've said, and I've mentioned this in a prayer meeting, 50% of whatever we take, we're giving away. We're supporting a church that's in Istanbul, which is a very hard place to be a Christian. There's, I think it's like 3,000 believers in a country of 60 million, and so we want to stand with them. And we're also going to send some money out to some churches in Crimea, well, obviously, you'll be aware, uh, our family of churches are working with many out there, and uh, very difficult under all the, the recent circumstances. So partly, today's a faith statement. It's us coming and saying, Father, you've blessed us so much. We want to be those that, almost over and above, this is our, this is our, our willing gift to you. So we're going to be doing this this week and next week. Uh, I know Charlotte and the band will be leading us in a, a time of worship. We're not going to send the pot round again. If you've got an envelope and you'd like to bring it, you can just bring it and stick it in the pot. For some people, if you're really honest, you think, hey, this is just a chance for me to buy in on the church, and you're just going to put a standing order in. And that's great as well. If you need any of these forms, the good-looking David is stood at the back and will serve you in any ways. He's got envelopes, and we've also got standing order forms. You may need to take those away and bring them back next week. So... Without further ado, I'll hand over to Charlotte. Let's all stand.